Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Zechariah, selections from chapters 3, 4, and 6. I will be reading from the New International Version. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. The word of the Lord came to me, take silver and gold from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jozadak. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks, Adrian. So today we're going to have, uh, Susan Rice is going to be preaching this morning. I just wanted to get up uh, real briefly and introduce Susan to you again because it's been so long. It's been like 15 months. And Susan actually has preached here before, but I think it's been a couple years now that she's, since she's preached. And we're going to be having different guest preachers in this summer, and so I thought I'd take some time to introduce them. Susan's been a member of our church for 35 years uh, her and her husband, Andrew, they have two daughters that grew up in the church. They have a granddaughter, and I think some more on the way is what I understand, so that's good. So I know that's exciting. And uh, one of the things I have appreciated about Susan is not only is she, well, she's a retired nurse and from the medical field. She also has taught BSF for years. She is now a BSF a Bible study fellowship leader, team leader, area leader, and uh, has great teaching uh, ability uh, when it comes to the scriptures. So she has that ability. One of the things I personally appreciate about Susan uh, as a member of our church is that when she asks questions about sermons, you can tell she's thought about it. Like, you know, she's really thought about it and processed it. And then, and so when Susan uh, responds to a sermon, we actually dialogue about it. And we have a, conversa- a little bit of a conversation about it, which shows the depth of her insight into the Word of God. And so that's why I'm happy to have her preaching today and to share her insights, uh, not just her insight, but the Spirit as the Spirit guides her 
uh, as she shares the word of God from Zechariah, which is a tough thing. Come on up, Susan. So, which is a tough thing. We're hitting minor prophets, and I almost thought about just hitting the minor prophets this summer, and so far we're doing a pretty good job. So, I want to pray for Susan as she comes up here, and let's pray. God, thank you for Susan. Thank you for putting your word in her heart and in her mind this week, and we just pray that your Holy Spirit would be with her right now as she preaches, as she shares with us your word, that it would not return void, but that your word would go out to all of us today, and that we would hear from you, God, what we need to hear today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Matt. It's always fun to talk to pastors about their sermon and just see if they were paying attention, too. So... It's, sorry, so good to be with you today, and just a delight to be present here um, and present with those of you who are online, and it's just a delight to speak from God's Word. And thank you, Adrian, for reading a rather complicated set of passages. Zechariah might not be something you read very often. Maybe you've never read it. And actually, this week, including this morning, there were a number of friends and family who would say, well, I read Zechariah and what you're going to be talking about, and why did you choose that passage? Yeah. Well, why indeed? When I first heard the title for this series, Prophets, Priests, and Kings, it reminded me of a number of years ago when I first took a deep dive into the history of Israel and the Minor Prophets. And I found that the minor prophets were really amazing and, and kind of exciting and kind of difficult. And so I didn't pick this because it was easy, but because of amid the kind of pre-apocalyptic style that he has and the visions and the symbols, there are some real treasures in here, just like there are throughout the minor prophets, gems that we can look at and think about. We can have gems of salvation, grace, the restoration that God's going to bring to the world and his people someday, and gems about Jesus, the Messiah. All of those are in passages in Zechariah. So let's look at three of the treasures. Now, for context, we are this morning in Jerusalem, post-exile, post-exile. In 536 BC, a group of Jewish people left Babylon, came back to Jerusalem, which was in ruins, and they were charged with rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the place of worship, the center of Jerusalem, the center of the people to worship God and where God would dwell. That temple had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar 70 years earlier, a little more than 70 years earlier. And so they had come in 536, they had started to build, and then they gave up, and it stopped. So where we are now is 520 BC, 16 years later, and God has been speaking through the prophet Haggai and now through Zechariah, motivating the people to get back to the work of rebuilding the temple. In fact, when they had stopped building, they kind of got sidetracked and were building their own homes and working on their things, leaving the place of God desolate. So Zechariah one night had eight visions. Can you imagine eight wild dreams in one night? All different, all vivid. 
And we're going to look at the two central visions and the one that's at the end of the eighth vision today. Because Zechariah is envisioning these images that pertain actually in the big picture to our salvation and to a future priestly king. It was a message of encouragement for those people who were discouraged and in a place of ruin. And I think that this can really encourage us today and, and challenge us as well. Zechariah is a priest. Another person that we see in these passages is Joshua. He's the high priest of the time. And also Zerubbabel, who was the leader of the exiles. He was like the governor. So in chapter 3, we see an accuser, but we also see a cleansing. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Joshua is standing there, it says, after this, in filthy clothes. Think sewer stained. Think awful. This is terrible. And yet, yes, he can be accused of sin. They all could have been accused of sin. We can be accused of sin. And yet, God defends his high priest. God defends his people and rebukes Satan, who then flees without saying a word. And then, even better, the foul clothing is removed. He's given new robes and a new turban. That's part of the headdress, the clothing of the high priest. He is made new by the power of God who takes away sin. That's a beautiful image. You know, Israel had sin. In fact, they had sinned so grievously that they were removed from the land for 70 years to exile in Babylon. They had sinned in idolatry, worshiping other gods, ignoring their own god. They had sinned also, as we'll see later in Zechariah, by neglecting their community, neglecting the marginalized and the poor, being unjust. And yet now we see God is forgiving. God's receiving them back into the land. He's going to restore them, and he's restoring their hearts as well. And so it also, in verses 8 and 9, talks about a branch. You're like a branch. What does that have to do with anything? But I'm going to bring my servant the branch. And someday I'm going to remove sin in a single day. When the branch is used, that word, in the Old Testament and with different prophets, it's referring to God's Messiah. Someday the Messiah is going to come. And at that time, on a special day, he is going to remove sin and make a way permanently. Thinking about this stick plucked from the fire reminded me of the Wesley tour that some of us went on a few years ago. And we were in England and Ireland, and we were touring the rectory at Epworth. And that is where John Wesley grew up. And as we were touring upstairs and about to walk down the stairs, here was this picture. This picture was rather dramatic, stopped and looked. And here is a scene when John Wesley was five years old, and the house caught fire at night, and it was about to collapse. And so the family's trying to get all eight 
children out and everybody out of there. They get out and Susanna Wesley realizes John isn't there. And then he appears out that window. And his father kneels praying, thinking that, okay, God, take him into your hands because this is the end. And yet a neighbor tried to rush in to rescue him and couldn't get in through the flames. So all the neighbors made a human ladder to pluck John from the fire, and he was saved. That was a pretty influential moment in his life. And his mother, Susanna, ever since said, John is a special person. He's been chosen by God for something. Grace. John knew it was God's grace that saved him. It's grace that saves us from sin that we can't remove ourselves. In fact, that's something to remember from this chapter. Only God can remove the stain of our sin-sick souls. We can't do it ourselves. Only God can do it. Have you been soul cleansed by turning to Jesus? To be saved from sin. Another word for sin, an old-fashioned one, is iniquity. And that has the meaning in Hebrew of the twisted attitudes or the bent towards self that leads to wrong behavior and unjust behavior. But Joshua, this high priest, this gives us a view of what Christ does. Christ is the greater high priest. Christ is the one who is also the sacrifice to take away our sin. He gives new life and peace with God. And so he's the way to soul health and wholeness. What a great picture amidst this vision. God in his grace has brought exiles back to a torn up land. And God in his grace wants to restore people and empower them as well. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 4. Zechariah now, in his vision, sees a lampstand. And he sees a bowl, and there's seven lights on it, there's channels, and somehow it's connected to two olive trees. Now, this would remind a priest of the former temple or the tabernacle because there was a lamp there. And in fact, in Solomon's temple, there were ten lamps, kind of like menorahs. They were to be always lit. In the law, it, always, it said, do not let the light go out. Keep these lamps always burning. And so that's probably what he would have thought of. And olive oil was used for fuel, so here's olive trees providing a constant source of fuel for that light. And Zechariah is wondering, well, what does this mean? And you might wonder what its meaning is, and I'm wondering what it means. And so the angel fortunately tells us what it means. He says, this is the word of the Lord. In verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, now that's the governor, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, a mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you'll become level ground. You see, Zerubbabel had laid the foundation of that temple years before. And God is saying, you're going to complete it. But not in your own strength. You're going to complete it in my power, with my ability. They had started building the temple, and some had even cried when they finished the footing because it was so much smaller than the original temple, and some of them remembered it. And they said, this is just too small. And yet in verse 10, the Lord says, who despises the day of small things? 
He says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation. His hands will complete it. Isn't that beautiful? An encouragement for Zerubbabel, for all of them. Get back to the building of my house, for the place of worship. But don't do it on your own. Do it in my power. A mountain will be leveled, and maybe that was the, power, the mountain of rubble that the temple was right now, but it's going to be leveled. This is going to happen. What does that say to us in a culture that really encourages individualism and kind of has this idea of invincibility and independence? Do it yourself. Be in charge. Do it whatever way it works. Is that how God desires us, his people, to be? The exiles had failed in their own strength and ability to get this temple moving and going. And our own ability might get us to a point, and it might even look impressive, and yet, in the eternal sense, it's not going to make it. Because we need God's power to do God's kingdom work and God's purposes for us. The only lasting thing is what is done through the power of the Spirit. Now, anyone who comes to Jesus in faith has the Holy Spirit. We know that, but do we sometimes forget about it? The Holy Spirit fills us and cleanses us and teaches us, is the one transforming us to be more like Jesus, and to grow in us the fruit of the Spirit, and to grow in us a spirit of humility and dependence on God. He works through us in the big and small of life. The people were discouraged by what was small, and yet God says, no, don't despise what's small. And so we have a choice in the matter, to cooperate with his spirit, to be connected. And as I was thinking about that, I actually thought about coffee. How many of you had coffee this morning? I can't see hands online, but I'm sure they're up. And I love my espresso machine. It has lots of buttons I can push, and I can kind of develop the latte that I want to build. And I can push all those buttons I want, but if it's not plugged in, I'm not going to get anywhere. Now, we have that spirit, but are we staying plugged in to him within us? God's people were discouraged, but he had a message of encouragement. He had a message of encouragement. And is that encouraging for you to remember that God's work doesn't work in our strength, but in his. Something I want to remember, God's work doesn't work in our strength, but it works in his strength. So we've seen images of God's renewal, of his empowerment, and now let's look at chapter 6, because we're going to see a crown and a priest king. In chapter 6, verse 9... The Lord again, the word of the Lord again comes to Zechariah. And he's told to go to these three exiles that have just come from Babylon, get some silver and gold, and make a crown. And then he was going to place that crown on the high priest Joshua's head. Now, this is very unusual because in Israel's history, the king wore the crown, the priest wore the turban, the headdress, and they didn't swap them around at all. The priest had his role in the temple. The king had his role ruling people, but they were not joined. 
And it's interesting because this vision show, and this scene they were to enact showed the high priest receiving a crown, and yet that crown wasn't to be used. He was not the one who would be a priest king, and that crown was to stay as a memorial in the temple. But it goes on in verse 12. Here's that word branch again. Here's the man whose name is the branch, and he'll branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It's he who will build the temple, and he'll be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne. And again, branch is referring to Messiah, and Messiah, we know, is Jesus. Here we have a king and a priest who would build the true temple of the Lord and would reign forever. We have to turn to Hebrews for this. In Hebrews 1, 1, it talks about how Jesus is God's son, how he is the heir of all things and the radiance of God's glory. And after he made provision for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father on high. After Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he is on the throne. He was the high priest who is also the king forever. And in Hebrews 8, 1, it says, We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is that priest king, the final priest, the ultimate king, the one who will reign forever. What a picture of hope for them and of hope for us. In our, the very first sermon of our series that Matt did, he talked about a priest-king image that was in Genesis. And he also brought up 1 Peter chapter 2 and talked about Christ's temple and Christ's priesthood. The temple is a place of worship. And 1 Peter 2 says, in him we are a spiritual house. God's people, his church, capital C and small c, his church is his temple, and we're to reflect him to the world. That means if we're in a temple and we're his, and he's our high priest, then we're priests. Because it says we're to be a people of worship and to proclaim the greatness of God who's rescued us through Jesus. And so how do we worship? In Zechariah 7, the people asked, do we still need to fast? like we did in Babylon. And the Lord says through Zechariah, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you did that? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? And the word of the Lord said, administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. Worship is both here and in our lives, in our lives individually and in our lives corporately in what we do and how we live out being priests under our high priest, Jesus. How do we reflect him? individually and as this church. Well, we've had a whirlwind tour of a little portion of Zechariah, and maybe someday we need a, we need a study on Zechariah. Twelve weeks, go through all of it. Yeah, okay. 
But we have a prophet who envisions a priestly king, and we have this word of encouragement. We found some treasures this morning. God restores, he empowers, he encourages his people to be faithful in their work and to worship as he would have them worship. So may the word of the Lord speak to our hearts just as he spoke through Zechariah. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And sometimes it's, it's not always clear, and yet through your spirit, you want to teach us and speak to us. Lord, we thank you that you were at work then, and you are at work in your current temple, your people. We pray, Lord, that we would lean on your spirit to do your work in your way and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.